Our praises to the Lord, yeah. It's very good. Um, thank you to our musicians. You guys did a great job, as always, in leading us this morning. Um, it is uh, certainly a privilege to be a part of the work that God is doing in the world, uh, and specifically here at Woodhaven Bible Church. I'm very, very thankful uh, for, for what God is doing here. I'm thankful for you all. Um, it is just a sweet thing to come on Sundays and to see all of you and uh, to interact with you and hear what's going on and uh, just to experience our growth in Christ together um, is a privilege and a joy. And that's uh, the way God intended it to be. Um, when the, the church began in Acts, it was intended to be a community of believers who worked through life together and supported one another and encouraged one another and confronted one another when needs be and taught the word of God together and, and learned the gospel and grow together and then see the gospel go forth. And um, that has been happening for 2,000 years all over the globe. And we get to take part in that huge, massive mission that God is doing. And it's, it's happening here among us. Um, every week, uh, we come together and we uh, encourage our hearts by singing to the Lord. We exalt him. And uh, that is just a, for me, even this morning, that is a solidifying thing to sing and just draw my attention to the Lord and focus on him and exalt him. Um, and, uh, and worship him. And then we sit under the word of God and we learn the scriptures together. And we're studying the book of Exodus right now and have been for a while and will be for a while. And through that, we're learning God's big plans and his salvation and his gospel together. And we're incrementally growing together week in and week out. You and I are understanding the scriptures better. And we're, our faith is being solidified in the work of God. And we're knowing God better, as we're going to talk about this morning. And so all of that is happening. I know sometimes on a rainy Sunday, it seems like, you know, you're just ah, going to church this morning. You grab your coffee, you head in here. But the Lord is doing important things among us, um, as he has been for a long time. And uh, he continues to do that. So, so be encouraged this morning um, that God is at work. The Spirit is moving among us. And people are being built up and coming to Christ, and growing, uh, and uh, I'm just thrilled uh, with all that the Lord is doing. So uh, in light of that, or kind of in addition to that, let me just give you one encouragement and announcement um, as, we're, as we're moving forward as a church body um, before we get to the text in Exodus. Um, we announced several months ago that we're in, uh, in the process of looking for uh, an associate pastor here uh, to serve full-time at WBC. Uh, and I just want to let you know, update, that process is continuing on. Um, the, uh, we've had Zoom calls with, with several folks, uh, candidates. We've had, uh, you know, uh, lots of resumes come in um, to us and uh, have interacted with some folks along those lines. So I just want to let you know we are, we are in that process and it is moving along. Um, and we're, we're getting to the point where we're starting to bring in some of you into that interview process. And so... Um, anyway, just wanted to let you know about that and keep you up to date with that. And you can pray along those lines. Um, we're excited and encouraged by what's happening. And so, um, you know, I can't give you all the details at this point because we don't know all the details, but just please pray for that process. And uh, we're continuing in it uh, so that the Lord can do his work here um, among us uh, in the future. So open your Bibles up to Exodus 18. That's where we're going to be this morning. Exodus chapter 18. 
Most of us, most of you, have some criteria in mind for what counts as a good investment in your life. Now, that may be true of money. Maybe that's the first place your, your mind goes. You think about your portfolio or your retirement. You think about an investment in those terms, and that's true. You have some idea of what a good investment looks like. But we also think about investments in other areas of life, in our time. What is a, a good use of our time in relationships, a good investment in a relationship? We all have some criteria in mind. I know many of you have spent a Sunday afternoon watching the Lions and come away saying, that was a waste of the precious hours of my life. That was not a good investment of my time. I should have spent that time elsewhere. Maybe that'll change with the new coach. Probably not, right? <laughs> Cynicism seems to be a part of the culture of Detroit sports, I will say. As that's something I've learned big time. But when you think about an investment of your time, let's broaden the scope out from just hours, a few hours on a Sunday afternoon, to months and to years, and then let's think about the investment of an entire human life. What will it take for you to look back at your life and think that the way I use those 80, 90 years of my life, that was a wise investment of my time. I was given this amount of years, this amount of months and hours, and I generally used that time well. Maybe phrase that question another way. What makes a human life worthwhile and not a waste? One Christian theologian, J.I. Packer, put it this way. What makes life worthwhile is having a big enough objective, something which catches our imagination and lays hold of our allegiance. And you'll occasionally hear people in our culture speak this way, and it's exactly right. They'll talk about giving their lives away in the service of something bigger, than themselves, some cause, some goal, some mission that will outlast their allotment of time. And people try to find this bigger objective that catches their imagination in all sorts of arenas. It may be in politics, it may be in education, it may be in research into some medical advancement, it may be in serving the community, in law enforcement, or in the hospital system. It may be in technological innovation. There's all sorts of arenas of human work that we try to find that bigger cause that catches our imagination. And there's a sense in which some of these things I've just mentioned, mentioned do provide a meaningful use of a human life, right? I mean, if you give your life to try to find a cure to Alzheimer's and you find it, or your research allows someone down the road to find it, that is a worthwhile investment of a human life. That's a good way to spend your time. But a lofty goal, even a lofty goal like that, is not attainable for all of us, and even that is not the ultimate and most worthwhile way to spend a human life. That would be secondary to the most significant thing you and I can do with the time we've been given on earth. I mean, you could give your life to some amazing cause. You could find the cure 
for some terrible disease and still miss the point of why you were put here. And here's the rest of this quote on the screen. What makes human life worthwhile is having a big enough objective, something which catches our imagination and lays hold of our allegiance, and this the Christian has in a way that no other man has. For what higher, more exalted, and more compelling goal can there be than to know God, to have a relationship with him? Now, does that statement seem anticlimactic to you? It's kind of like, oh, well, that's it? (laughs) Okay. Maybe it feels slightly off, like, man, there's got to be something different or something better. And if so, maybe we need to have our ability to assess our investments recalibrated. The created God, or the God that created the universe, has designed us. He has made us to give our lives away for some bigger cause, and that bigger cause is to grow in the knowledge of Him. It is to have a relationship with Him, and it is to know Him. We were made for that relationship. It is the ultimate thing that you and I can give our lives to. Listen to the Apostle Paul and the way he put this in Philippians chapter 3. For whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish or dung in order that I may gain Christ. Whatever things in Paul's life, and he lists them earlier in this chapter, but whatever things seemed worthwhile, whatever things seemed to make his life click and make it a wise investment of his time, all of those things he considered rubbish compared to the chance, the opportunity, and the possibility that he, as a human being, might know the Lord Jesus Christ, that he might have a relationship with him. Now, what does all this have to do with the book of Exodus? Well, this is a very good time to remind you that the title of this study in the book of Exodus is Rescued to Know Him. That's the whole point of the book. The Israelites were rescued from Egypt for the purpose of knowing God, of coming into a relationship with Him. We're rescued Just like they were, we are rescued from sin for this goal, for that much bigger purpose. And that purpose is like an umbrella over the entire book. And we've reached a chapter in chapter 18 that will provide a major transition between the two parts of the book, the first portion and the second portion of the book. And this chapter is going to connect that theme to both sections of the book. And so what's going to happen here is Moses, the author, is going to look backwards in the first part of this chapter, and then he's going to look forward in the second part of this chapter. And looking backward, the glance backward that he's going to give us, and the glance forward, the glance backward to summarize what has come before, and the glance forward to prepare us for chapters 19 through 40, both of those glances This works a little bit like a hinge, are going to connect us to this theme of being rescued to know God, to come into a relationship with him. 
Both sections of this are going to point us to the importance of knowing God and to know Him for our lives to be meaningful. And so in Exodus 18, here's what we're going to look at. Two means that God uses to make His name known. So in other words, for us, two ways that God makes His name known so that we can come into a relationship with Him and we can find purpose in our lives in the knowledge of Him. And the first means that God uses is through His salvation. And we'll find this in verses 1 to 12. God puts His character on display through the way He delivers people from bondage to sin. So essentially, this first portion of chapter 18 draws together the major themes of God's rescue of Israel from Egypt, and it solidifies God's purpose in making his name known. We've read about this over and over again in the first 17 chapters of Exodus. God does this, and he does this, and he does this, all to put his character on display and to make his name known. And ultimately, he wants to make his name known to the Egyptians, certainly to the Israelites, but he wants it to go far beyond that. He wants every nation and tribe and tongue to know who he is and to be able to come into a relationship with him. Look at verse 1. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now, Jethro, this guy that comes back into the story here, is someone that we met earlier in the book of Exodus. This is Moses' father-in-law. And Moses worked for his father-in-law in Midian for many, many years, about 40 years as a shepherd. In fact, if you'll remember back in chapter 3, when Moses comes to the burning bush to Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb there, He was tending his father-in-law Jethro's flocks, and he wandered onto this mountain and saw the burning bush and had his encounter with God, where God called him to return to Egypt and be used as an instrument to rescue the Israelites. And earlier in Egypt, or earlier in Exodus, we saw, just like we see here, who Jethro is. Look back there at verse 1, just to make sure we're clear, Jethro is the priest possibly the high priest, but certainly one of the priests in Midian. So let me clarify what that means for us. Jethro was not a worshiper of Yahweh. This was not someone who knew Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, the creator God. This was not someone who worshiped him. And instead, this guy was someone who helped his countrymen worship false pagan gods. He helped to facilitate that. And yet, he knew his son-in-law Moses had gone back to Egypt, and he begins, apparently, to hear reports about all the crazy stuff that is happening. I mean, he hears that the entire nation that has been in bondage to the Egyptians for hundreds of years has walked out of Egypt and that the Egyptian army had pursued them and been defeated. And that is a crazy, crazy story that he keeps hearing as word would get around and as travelers would come through his area. Now, verses 2 through 4 
fill in a bit of info for us on what brings Jethro back to meet with Moses. Verse 2. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, remember her, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home. And so at some point, we don't know exactly when, Moses had apparently sent his wife and his two sons back to her father. We don't know when that took place. We don't know if it was before he went back to Egypt. We don't know if it's after they got into the wilderness. But either way, they were back in Midian with her father. And I want you to notice specifically Moses' son's names. Verse 3 and verse 4. Along with her two sons, the name of the one was Gershom. For, he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land and the name of the other, Eliezer. For he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Now, of course, we met Gershom back in chapter 2. Moses named him, and we understood that his name specifically talked about Moses' sojourn in Midian as a foreigner, and he very much felt like a foreigner in a foreign country, in a strange land. And now we find out that Moses' second son, his name describes the situation of how Moses ended up in Midian. God rescued him from the sword of Pharaoh. Remember that whole incident where Moses killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand? Pharaoh found out and had to flee, and God rescued him and brought him to Midian. Now, it's very interesting here, and we've seen this before in Exodus, that Moses' life sort of prefigures what happens to Israel in God's salvation of them. I mean, God brought Moses through the water in the basket and delivered him out of judgment through a watery grave, just like he did to the Israelites later on. And it's interesting here that these two names sort of describe Israel's experience of salvation as well. They were foreigners in a strange land for a long time, and God delivered them from that and from the sword of Pharaoh. And so, after hearing these reports about what has happened, Jethro brings the family to reunite them to Moses. Look at verses 5 and 6 here. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he encamped at the mountain of God. So apparently, Israel's pretty close to Mount Sinai, not all the way there, but they're in the region, and this would have been known to the Midianites, and so Jethro comes, verse 6, and when he sent word to Moses, I, am your, father, I your father-in-law Jethro am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, shows him reverence, bowed down and kissed him, and they, and they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Now... This whole thing has been set up, and we get to the key part of this. Jethro hears about what's going on. He brings Moses' family to him to reunite them. And this is the part, verses 8 to verse 12, where the whole first section of the book, everything we've seen so far, comes to its climax and its culmination. And I'll explain why. Look at verse 8. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. I mean, this is a pretty brief summary, but can you imagine going into that tent and listening to Moses? I don't know how long he talked. It was probably a while. 
And he probably used his explanation as the basis for the entire first part of the book of Exodus and writing it out. But can you imagine hearing him recount this entire story, which is what Jethro did? I mean, from the encounters with Pharaoh that Moses had walking into his throne room and telling him to release the Israelites and the arguments that they had and the wrath of Pharaoh, to the plagues, the bloody Nile River, to the frogs, to the hail and the fire, to the death of all the firstborns in Egypt, to the way that none of them in Israel died because of the blood of a Passover lamb that was placed over the doorpost and God provided a sacrifice that protected them and kept them, to the way that Israel simply walked out of Egypt and headed out into the wilderness and took a whole bunch of Egyptian jewelry and goods with them when they did, to the way that they headed out into the wilderness and there was a pillar of cloud and fire that guided them So they ended up at the Red Sea and God parted the sea and they walked through on dry land and literally watched the water cover the Egyptians and for the dead bodies of the horses and the Egyptians to wash up on the shore. But Moses doesn't stop there. He continues on and includes Israel's struggles of faith in the wilderness. And he does that because he continues to talk about God's provision for his people. And notice how he concludes verse 8. And how the Lord had delivered them. I mean, that's the point of this. All of it is to talk about God's deliverance and God's salvation. And so Jethro, this pagan priest for years, is sitting there listening to this thorough explanation of how God the God of the Israelites, who claims to be the only true God, the God of creator God of the universe, has delivered his people and demonstrated power over the most powerful nation on earth. He has humiliated them through all of these experiences. And Jethro is sitting there and he's not hearing about Israel's goodness. He's not hearing about Israel's strength, about their savvy. He's not hearing about the way that they have obeyed God On Passover night, he's not hearing about how they tricked the Egyptians into giving them gold and jewelry and how smart they are. What he is hearing about over and over again is God's power to save. The whole thing is about God and his deliverance. And when you hear something like that, notice how he responds. Look at verses 9 and 10. And Jethro rejoiced. For all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered, and he keeps using that word delivered, the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. He rejoices in God's deliverance and he blesses God for his salvation. And then notice what brings all of this together in verse 11. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. Gods of Midian, gods of Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. Because in this affair, they dealt arrogantly with the people. Now he knows. And this, this statement 
This is exactly why God did all of this. This is the culmination of the whole thing. Yes, he wanted to deliver Israel. Yes, he was bringing them to be his chosen people, as we'll see in chapter 19. Yes, he has purposes for them, but even his purposes for them culminate with this. It's to put his character on display, and it's so that his name would be proclaimed throughout all the earth, including to a pagan Midianite priest. It's so that Jethro would hear this. Listen to chapter 9. We've seen this before, but verses 14 to 16. Moses talking to Pharaoh. The Lord talking, maybe I should say, to Pharaoh through Moses. For this time, I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. That's the whole reason for all of this. And a pagan Midianite priest has heard it here, and he has become a worshiper of Yahweh. Look at verse 12. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God or in the presence of God. So, do you want your life to be worthwhile? To have a point, to have a purpose that goes beyond material goods, material wealth? Know God through his salvation. Know him through his deliverance. This is who he is. This defines his character. He is a God who delivers. He is a God who saves. This is what he does throughout the scriptures. And so for you, for me, to make our lives worthwhile, dive into the glory of the gospel. We have a deliverance that far exceeds Israel's deliverance from Egypt, although it was glorious. We have a deliverance that is from our ultimate enemy, sin and death. And so to make your life worthwhile, dive into the glory of the gospel and soak in God's gracious salvation. Learn it, meditate on it, and know God through his deliverance. And so that's one means that God uses for us to know him, to make his name known. It's through his salvation. The next means. And this now is the hinge point where the book begins to anticipate what's coming in the future at Mount Sinai. The rest of the book is going to take place at Mount Sinai. Chapters 19, you'll see at the beginning of 19, they finally arrive at Sinai to receive the covenant, the case laws, the the golden calf incident happens, all of that is going to take place at Sinai. And this section that we're about to read prepares us and anticipates what Israel will need as a nation when they get there. And so the, the, the second means through which God makes his name known so that Israel can know his character, can know who he is and have a relationship with him is through his word. Now, let me make sure I struggled with what word to use here, whether to use the word word or law or commands 
or even I tossed around Torah as a word to use here. Because when I say this, that God makes himself known through his word, I want you to specifically think of two areas of the scriptures. The narrative portions of the Bible, like we just read, and maybe even more importantly for this and what God's going to do here and in the rest of Exodus, God makes himself known through his commands, through his law, through the ethical requirements that he has for his people. And we'll get into that, and I'll explain why and how and what he reveals about himself through his commands. But this section, verses 13 to 27, is going to look ahead to the rest of the book of Exodus. And in the rest of the book, we're going to find God making a covenant with Israel. And that covenant is going to include everyone's favorite part of the Old Testament, many, many laws, specific laws, laws that sometimes we read and go, okay, that was interesting. But it's going to include many, many laws, and they're important for us. It's important for us to see that God gives Israel these laws for a reason. God is going to instruct them in how to live before him. And that instruction, those commands, those laws are going to teach them who he is. They're going to know him through his word, through his Torah, through his commands, and through the narrative portions. So how does this section show that the people will come to know God through his law? Let's get into it. Let's follow the story, and I'll explain it to you. Look at verse 13. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. So apparently this is what normally happened as they're out in the wilderness, and Jethro gets to experience this. Moses spends all day, morning to evening, sunrise to sunset, solving disputes and helping to bring justice among the people. Now, what were these sort of disputes? I don't know. But some of them probably went back to their time in Egypt, where Israel wasn't a nation and was working so much under the hand of Pharaoh and in slavery that there were certain injustices or disputes about property or whatever that needed to come to a resolution. And so now that they're out from under the thumb of Pharaoh, they bring these things to Moses to try to get clarity on them. These could have been things that happened along the way while they're in the wilderness. We don't really know. But either way, what's happening here, Jethro sees this and he knows this is not sustainable. Look at verses 15 and 16. Sorry, verse 14. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. And so Jethro comes to him and says, this is not sustainable. You can't do this. It's not going to work. And Moses tries to explain. Look further in verse 16. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another. And then here's the key part of Moses' explanation. And I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. So Moses is a mediator between God and the rest of the Israelites. And so the Israelites have some understanding that they need to know what God wants of them. 
and they understand that Moses has access to that. And they knew that he would be the one communicating that to them. And so they have some understanding that to rightly relate to God, to dwell in his presence, to be his people, they have to know what he desires of them morally, ethically, how they are to live. So they understand to some level that their lives must be lived according to his will and his ways. And Moses tells Jethro that. And then Jethro responds, verse 17. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now, obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. Verse 20, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. And so the crux of the issue here, Jethro understands it and Moses understands it, that the people do need to know God's laws so that they can live before him. But they need someone to communicate those laws to them. And currently, the only one who is doing that is Moses. And so at this point, they probably have some basic understanding of how they're to live with one another. But God has not revealed to them the Ten Commandments. That comes in chapter 20. He's not made a covenant with them as his people. That comes later in the book. He's not given them specific case laws. None of that has happened yet. And so this whole circumstance here is not primarily about business organization and breaking things down into smaller groups. This whole incident here is highlighting the need for the Israelites to know God's commandments and the importance of them knowing what he requires of them ethically to be able to live before them, before him. And so they need someone to teach them this that needs to be clear, and then they need other people to help them apply it. Look at verses 21 to 23. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you. They will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. And so Jethro says, look, you've got to find the right guys. They have to be men of integrity who fear God. In other words, they rightly relate to God in humility and reverence. They know that he is God and they are not. They know God in his power and his holiness and they fear him. And so they're able to help the Israelites apply God's law. Now Moses listens to Jethro, verse 24. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. Now, let's fit this story into the whole book of Exodus, all right? The people have been enslaved for centuries. They've been under the thumb of Pharaoh. Now they are free, and they're following their one leader, Moses. God is going to very quickly form them into a nation that will need organization, will need to run 
effectively so that they can obey God's commands and live in harmony with one another. And they are going to need clarity regarding God's law and how to live as his covenant people. And this chapter shows the importance of that and the need for that. They have to learn to obey him as his covenant people. And this all points forward to the need for that. Now, in what way will God's law and God's commands teach them about God's character? Because that's really the point here, right? This is what I'm saying, that God's word, his law, his commands, even for us today, teach us about who God is. They help us to know God. And so in what way do God's commands instruct us in his character? I'm going to give you a couple of of ways that that happens here. First of all, God's commands, even to us, teach us about his sovereign authority. He is the creator God, the saving God, who has sovereign authority over all. He has the right to tell us how we should live. He is the only true God. He begins the Ten Commandments like this. You shall have no other gods before me. He alone is God. And we have learned that through the book of Exodus. And so the whole reason that God can make ethical judgments and requirements and can tell you and I how we should live and how we shouldn't live is because he is the true creator God. He's the right and the authority to do that. Psalm 119.73, the whole chapter is about God's word, his law, his commands. Look, look at the connection here. Your hands have made and fashioned me. God created you. He put you together. The reason that you and I are sitting here breathing and our hearts are beating is because of him. And so he has the right and the authority to tell us how to live. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. We want to know how the designer of our bodies and of our lives has instructed us to live so that we can live well. And it comes through his word, through his commandments. Another way that we know God through his commandments is that God's commands bring us to know his righteousness and his justice. They teach us that he is a righteous, holy, and just God. Psalm 119 again. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. God does not arbitrarily command things. He doesn't throw darts at the list of rules and pick out the ones that he hits. His laws flow from his character. They are connected. You can't have one without the other. And so his laws and his commands are an expression of who he is. And he is a righteous and a just God who loves justice. And finally, there are other things that God reveals about himself through his word, through his commands. But God's, maybe most important, God's commands communicate his love for us. Now, wait a minute, you might be thinking. I thought... It seems to me that commands are inherently legalistic and suppressive. I don't like being told what to do or how to live or how not to live. What is right and what is wrong, what is moral and what is immoral. 
I don't like that. But God's commands, the way he instructs us to live, communicate his love for us because his commands are ultimately for our good. Listen to Deuteronomy and what God says to Israel. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statues of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. It's for their good. And I think this is a major point of tension for Israel in the rest of the Old Testament. This is maybe one of the central issues that they struggled with. They didn't think of God's laws and his commands as for their good. They thought of them as oppressive and as annoying. They doubted God's goodness was expressed in his law. And I think we tend to doubt that today. We don't tend to make a connection between the ethical requirements that we find in Scripture and God's love and his goodness and his desire for our good. Now, it's quite clear from the New Testament that Jesus comes as the fulfillment of the Old Testament law, the laws of Torah. But the New Testament very much presents a way of life, an ethical way of life that is consistent with the morality of the Old Testament. As New Covenant believers, though, we don't obey all the specifics of the Old Testament. We don't keep all the sacrifices and all of the case law that we're going to learn about regarding which seeds you can sow in a field and if you can do them together or not. We are not bound by those laws anymore, but we do learn much as we read the Old Testament law, which has found its fulfillment in Christ. And one of the things we learn from the Old Testament law is that God's commands are always for our good. He has loved us enough to die for our sins, to forgive us of our sins, and now... In his grace and his kindness, he lays a pathway of ethical living in front of us and teaches us how to live, and that, is, that pathway is consistent and is consistently for our good. And so we obey. And we obey not to earn his favor, not to cause him to love us, and we obey not because he's going to squash us if we don't. We obey because we've been forgiven. And because we have new life, and because in his commands we know this is a God who loves us so much that he died for us. And now he says, live this way for your good. And out of love and concern and care for him, we say, okay, I know you love me, and I know this is for my good, and I see it. I can make the connection between these commands and between your love. And as we obey, we come to know him. Obedience to his word is required for knowledge of him. You cannot consistently live in a way that disobeys God's word and then grow in your knowledge of God. You grow in your knowledge of God through his salvation, through the deliverance that he has brought, and then through obedience to his word. And he uses both of those to draw us to him. And to bring everything back to the beginning, life begins to make sense and to be lived well, and it is spent in a worthwhile manner when it is spent pursuing the knowledge of God. And I'll end with this quote. Once you become aware 
that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. There's a, there's a continuity and a flourishing that happens in our lives. It's not all perfectly easy, but things fit and flow as they should as we rightly relate to God and pursue the knowledge of him with our lives. And that makes a life that is worthwhile and is well spent and is a good investment. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. I pray that you would use this passage to instruct us this morning on the importance of our pursuit of the knowledge of you. Lord, we want to know you. We want to rightly relate to you. So use your salvation. Use the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to increase our joy and our knowledge of you. And then use your word. Use your commands, your law, the Sermon on the Mount, the ethical instructions in Colossians and Romans and Philippians and all over the place. Help us to know you as a God who is is just and righteous and holy and who is good and loves us. And help us to know those things as we habitually obey your word. We thank you for the instruction we've received this morning. We thank you for who you are. It's in Christ's name we pray.